encapsulated, or I've encapsulated, what I've learned and gleaned from you as I've spoken to those founding families and those who've been drawn to this church, the character, nature, the foundation of what this congregation desires to be in Newburgh, we're encapsulating it in the three phrases, open door, open heart, open hands. And the idea being one of, we want to be a congregation and a body of Christ that is open to our community, open in the reality of who we are as fallen human beings, who we are in Christ and the joy that we have, and we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. Open Hearts describes briefly, and we're going to look at that in in the weeks to come, the reality that within Scripture, the heart is the center of the human existence. It's where the mind and the emotions and actions meet. And so the reality is that within the human condition, what you love determines what you think and what you'll do. And that's why Scripture, that's why Ecclesiastes, I mean Ezekiel this morning, said, I will give you a heart of flesh and take out your heart of stone. A living heart. And so we'll talk about what it means as a congregation to have our hearts open to the conversion, to the transformation that comes through Scripture. We want to be a church that has our hearts changed by the reality of who our God is and what He has done for us. And then the reaction within those changed hearts then is to have open hands. God's generosity for us then naturally pours out into those around us, both those within the community of faith here at Shehalem Valley, but then also to our neighbors who aren't a part of our congregation. There's so much that we are given in Christ that it can't be contained within our own lives, our own families, let alone within our congregation. If we are truly beginning to understand the nature of our relationship and our inheritance in Christ, you just can't spend all He gives you. And so we'll talk about that as we move forward. But this morning, we're on the second part of Open Door. Last week, we talked about the importance that as believers, we are honest and transparent about the human condition. Scripture is painfully honest about the human condition. So that we have these stories uh, about the great heroes of the faith, and yet in all of them, the reality of their human brokenness is also portrayed with equal fervor and clarity within the words of Scripture. Moses led the people out of Israel, but he was a proud man and took credit for God's work, and he didn't enter the promised land. King David, a man after God's own heart, failed grievously in the sin with Bathsheba and all of the consequences that poured out from that. And as we continue to go through the list of heroes in Scripture, we keep being let down until we get, of course, to Christ. That's the whole point. We're supposed to be looking for the one who is absolutely perfect, who can save us, who's more than an example. But as a congregation, what that means is that we don't put on airs. doesn't mean we confess our sins openly in some sort of sloppy manner every time we run into each other. It means that as we minister one to another, that there is a level of transparency, that that 
painfully true criticism of the church that we are hypocrites, that we deny our own brokenness, is erased. And that the world and within this body, we see the reality that we are those being saved, that we are being renewed, that we are being transformed, that we are works in progress. And the strength by which we can do that, of course, is the unconditional love of God knowing that He has already declared us to be perfect, even as we are sinner saints, as Luther said. And then I wanted to give this caveat before I read the Scripture. You will probably sense in me, sense is probably a delicate term, I take literally the idea. When Jesus says, don't worry about the speck, in your neighbor's eye, when you've got a log in your own. And so if sometimes I feel like or maybe communicating that there are great troubles within the way we do church, it's only because I think that's where we start. The world is an easy target. Those outside us, thats we can point to their flaws regularly. So I don't in any way mean to discourage us, simply to take from Scripture the reality that as we do business individually and as a congregation with where we fall short, that then God honors that with life, with renewal, and with health. So if if it seems like I'm, it's because there's a log in my eye. Maybe that's all I'm really doing, is that you are the poor victims of my own need to deal with the log in my own eye. But if it's helpful for you, I hope that it is. Let us put the text in front of us this morning then as we go to this idea that part of what happens as we embrace the reality of transparency and the gospel that comes with it, that there becomes this reality of celebration that we also see equally stressed in Scripture. And one of the most beautiful pictures of the celebration that is the consequence of the good news, the gospel, comes in this exceedingly famous passage of the parable of the lost son. It's really both sons are lost. The parable of two lost sons. The younger and the older brother are both lost. Where did I say we were starting this morning? Verse, thank you. Hear now God's word. The son said to him, that is the younger son who'd been away from his father for years, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, quick, bring the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine that was dead is now alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called to one of his servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother came, became angry, and refused to go in, so that his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, 
yet you never gave me so much as a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. So when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been found. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we require your spirit. We require because we need eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I ask that this morning your people might be fed through the foolishness of preaching, that your words might be spoken, and whatever is not of you may it quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. Famine touched by it, either through illnesses and loss of loved ones, ongoing battles with emotional or physical ailments, the difficulty of trying to find a job in Oregon in these days. There is great difficulty within the church, divided, numerous denominations, usually not on the friendliest of terms. Leaders publicly unmasked, sins hidden now being made public, record numbers of our covenant children leaving the faith. There are real, real reasons for concern, for grief, for anger, for dismay, for hopelessness. How on earth can we talk about the importance and significance of celebration? In light of the reality of a broken world in which we live, how on earth can we talk about being people who are known for and have the reputation of being those people who celebrate, who enjoy the good things in life? Aren't those things fundamentally contradictory? That if we were truly serious about the needs within our community and the brokenness within our own lives, that we should be austere and serious about the nature of sin and death. Scripture seems to indicate, not seems to indicate, does indicate that it's a false choice. That we can be serious and honest about the reality of the human condition in a fallen and broken world, and at the same time, there is a reason for us to rejoice. There is a reason for us to be people of the feast. So what do we see here this morning in both the readings that were done earlier as well as in the passage here in Luke that should give us a foundation for a right understanding of what it means to be people who celebrate in this day and age? Four points this morning. There is a call. There are some intrinsic challenges in celebrating. There is a cure, 
and there is deep change. Call, challenge, cure, and change. First of all, the call. Again, the reality is that we read these passages, even in Ecclesiastes, which tends to be a book wrought with an uncharacteristically honest and complex explanation of the human condition, so much so that it's occasionally been credited as not even being a really a, a book that belongs in the Bible, that it's written from some sort of skeptical view. I think that's simplistic. The reality is, is Ecclesiastes is a upper division level class in godly wisdom literature. This is what happens when things don't go right. And as believers, how do we deal with that reality that we're holding on to God is good and everything around us may not seem to indicate that He is from our perspective, from a limited human view. But even in Ecclesiastes, what does the writer say? Most likely, I believe, Solomon. What does he say? In the face of the chaos and the lack of control, which we'll talk more about in a minute, all we can do is enjoy the moments of peace that we have. To break bread, to drink wine, to enjoy family or friends. To embrace those moments. Here in Luke, clearly, the encouragement for celebration is that we were dead and now have been made alive. That's something to celebrate. In fact, you can't really celebrate if you're dead. And so the reality of being made alive, being restored, right? that's what happens with this younger brother. The younger brother has abandoned his position. He took all of his inheritance and he squandered it. But he comes back and the way that he is described by the father is that he was dead and is now alive. He was lost, but has been found. And any time that happens, that is a point of celebration. We do it at weddings. We do it at the birth of a child. Of course, life makes us celebrate. And Scripture is telling us that life has power. That even in the face of, and again, we'll get more into this later in the sermon, in the face of what appears to be overwhelming evidence of the power of sin and death, that that's a lie. That it's an illusion. That the real power, not that the pain is an illusion, but the real power is not in death anymore. The real power is in life. That ultimate victory is not that of deaths, but of life. And so even though we go through the real pain of death and sin now, when we are at the point of being crushed, Scripture says you are not crushed because life is stronger. You will not be infinitely or eternally crushed by the weight of the brokenness and sin. That is something to celebrate. That is no small reality. In fact, it is reality. C.S. Lewis uh, talks about it this way, that if we're talking about human beings going down a road in a path, what Scripture is telling us is that we're headed down a road and we're becoming either a being of incomprehensible light or incomprehensible darkness. And what Scripture is saying is that because of the work of Christ, we are now headed down a road of becoming 
beings of incredible light and life. But if you're like me, you regularly doubt how bright you really are. That whether or not there is a reality of life and light. Which is, of course, the challenge. How can I do it? Well, what, what are the things that are fighting against me? Life is often exceedingly hard. The challenge we face is that the reality in which we live still plagued with brokenness and death. But even if it's a defeated enemy, it doesn't know it yet. Or if it does, it's like a trapped animal in a corner and it's lashing out in every direction. And it's having still the power to wound. Ecclesiastes talks about the appearance of futility of life. That even as we wrestle to do significant things, to bring life, to bring security, to bring peace, to bring happiness, it's fleeting. We can't sustain it. And it feels like it's futile. For some of us, grief begins to overwhelm us. And in the image of C.S. Lewis, instead of becoming a being of greater light, that bitterness takes us over and we feel ourselves being sucked into an existence of darkness. A grief at the reality, the real things, the broken relationships, the severed ties, the loss of loved ones, the loss of security, that real and true grief overwhelms us and the challenge and the temptation for bitterness to overwhelm us, we feel it. We know it. And if it's not grief, perhaps it's anger. A burning sense of the wrongness of this existence. That we should not have to deal with saying goodbye. That we should not have to deal with want and need. so deep within us that it poisons every aspect of our lives. That our very words become poison to those around us. Instead of speaking life, we can't help but exude our anger and frustration at the fact that things aren't going the way they're supposed to. Instead of bring light and life, our tongues bring bitterness and poison. Why? Well, I will venture that my understanding of Scripture is this, is that we are in those moments of our greatest grief and anger wrestling with the fact that we are out of control. And as human beings, since the snake said in the garden to Adam and Eve, you can be like God, the temptation was that of control. You can no longer or you can be no longer dependent upon a God. You can be independent gods yourself. You can have control. That's what Ecclesiastes is wrestling with. 
The word there that gets translated meaninglessness is actually the word in Hebrew for vapor. And what the writer is trying to get through to us is that every time you try and hold on and manage and leverage control, like vapor through your hands, it disappears. You cannot hold on to it. You cannot control. There are too many variables. Too many, infinite number of variables. And the harder you try to control it, the more life slips through your fingers. Like vapor in a person's hand. We are dying to be in control. We risk eternal death in our attempts to get control by abandoning God and reaching for the brass ring ourselves. And so now, wrestling with the fact that we can't control it, we are left with the grief and the anger, the bitterness and the poison that comes from coming face to face with our inability to leverage control. And we feel the futility of our own efforts. We don't like to be honest. So what do we do? Faced with the futility of our existence and our own control, I see two things that we normally try and do to manage this sense of being out of control. One, we try and make life more manageable. How do we do that? Pain management. And I, what do we do in pain management? We utilize good things that God made for celebration and joy as a proof of reality and His goodness. We twist them into escapes. They become an escape from reality. So enjoying the goodness of a glass of wine with our family and friends we drink ourselves into oblivion. Instead of being able to enjoy the richness of physical intimacy of marriage, we pollute it and pervert it into pornography. We live in the fantasy and not in the real. Instead of utilizing the gifts of God financially that He's given us to enjoy for our families and to be generous with others, we hoard it in little pots and in little banks in desperate hope that it will give us enough security and significance. Pain management, self-medication, food. Pain medicine, whatever it may be. Things that can be used for good, that are supposed to be a part of the celebration. We pervert them. And we try and hide ourselves in those escapes. So pain management, first and foremost, comes or not first and foremost, for some of us, comes through the escape in perverting the good gifts of God. And that's whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, by the way. Christians do this too. We escape from our pain. Using these same crutches, using these same drugs, But then there's also point pain avoidance. So if you don't anesthetize yourself, you avoid it. What does that mean? You create the smallest possible world you can so that you can manage everything within it. You avoid the complications of the world 
by making a smaller world that you can manage. Piety and religious achievement. It's what Paul speaks against in Colossians. What do we do? Well, we fence everything. If there's a potential for abuse, wall it off. Keep it on the outside. That way we won't have anything left to abuse. Of course, it reminds me kind of of that idea of like those those uh, movies where there's a virus and it starts spreading and the people are running around desperately trying to quarantine things and then somebody sneezes or some you know you have these scenes where like the camera zooms in and you can almost see the virus leaving with that person and then it spreads and the whole world dies. In Christianity, and in American Christianity. As the culture has changed, as the tenor of the public discourse has become more and more crass, more whatever, however you want to describe the changing of our culture to what's being described a more secular postmodern culture, a significant part of American evangelicalism has started to avoid the complications and the pain of the world by making our world exceedingly and increasingly smaller. Consciously or unconsciously, we have moved away from engagement within a culture and a world that so desperately needs the light and life of the gospel into enclaves which are smaller and smaller. They may seem larger because they have massive campuses. And when everybody comes at once, it seems like there's a lot of people there. But the impact and the reality of the kingdom of God being spread into the world is greatly decreasing. Piety and religious observance. What we're really doing is we're locking, guess what, the virus is in you. It doesn't matter how small you make your group theologically. Religious observances, however you define your religious subgroup, your Christian subgroup, the problem, folks, is that you're still in it. Which means eventually, no matter how big and tall your wall is, the virus is going to spread. Which is sometimes what you see in our own history as Reformed people. We have this desperate and right desire to know Scripture and understand it through our theology. And it has given us a great heritage. But we also have a tendency to think that our theology is purer than it really is. And if somebody doesn't agree with some of the minutiae, sometimes they get X'd out. And if you'll notice, there's this thing in history where the Reformed denominations keep getting more and smaller. It's because we shoot our own. We're locking ourselves in with the most dangerous people around, us. Our culture keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, our subculture. It's a way of pain avoidance. As parents, we want our children to be protected from some of the sins that we committed. The sins of the father are visited on the son. The virus is within you. I never met my biological father. I was raised with a godly man who probably never had a wild idea in his life except for riding a motorcycle way too fast. 
but my biological father had many other tendencies. I never knew him. At 22, when God brings me to repentance, one of the things that my mother said to me was, you're so much like your dad and you never knew him. It would have been nice to know what his tendencies were. Maybe I could have avoided it. We try and lock out those things, but the reality is we can't. And the more honest we are about what it is that plagues us, what it is that besets us, if we go through the pain as opposed to trying to avoid it and walling ourselves off in a hermetically sealed religious bag, the more likely that we will be healed. The reality is we will be to go through. You don't want to go through the pain and neither do I. I'd rather anesthetize it. The good news is that you don't have to go through the deepest, darkest realities of the pain and brokenness within you. Because Christ did it on the cross. He took all of the deepest, darkest realities of your virus and mine, my brokenness and yours, and He took it all on Himself. We cannot even fathom the stuff that you don't like to think you're capable of doing. Jesus was exposed to all of that. He bore the darkest of our human fallen nature. And then He went through the painful reality of being rejected by the Father. You and I will never be rejected. It was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Cure is the fact that Christ went through the deepest part of your pain. The pain that would have killed you and would have killed me. He went through that pain so that I wouldn't have to. So that the pain that I feel as real as it is is not pain that can kill me. The suffering that I go through and you go through, as real as it is, not only does Christ know it, but the good news is it's not the pain that can kill you. That was dealt with 2,000 years ago. After He rose. He beat death. He defeated our sin. There is no condemnation There is no longer judgment. It has been fulfilled. How do we deal with our tendency and desire to escape the pain? We go to the cross. We recognize that our pain has been met. That in our deepest moments of pain, Christ is there with us. He's been through it. We are not alone. He will bring us to our own Easter. To our own rebirth. Every time. He will never belittle nor make insignificant the reality and the depths of your pain. He will meet you there. He will begin to turn on the light and lead you out. And what happens then well, my stars, if you start heading into the light, if you've gone through the darkness, what can you be but joyous? 
and at rest. Death and sin are not strong enough. The wine then becomes sweet again. And we can enjoy it not as an escape, but for what it was designed to be, which is an expression of God's gift to His people. Wine that makes the heart glad. And food no longer an escape, but sweet. Flavorful again. Fellowship with others, not a weight of trying to keep up image or ideas, but a place to be at peace and joy where they know you and you know them. You both know the freedom of That within the body of Christ, it's not an enclave with great big walls. There's a part of this that makes me think that by the end of this sermon, it's not an open door. We shouldn't have a door at all. That it's just open. That the world might see that no, we are not diminishing the reality of the brokenness, but because of the light and the freedom we have in Christ, we can grab hold of those moments of peace and joy and enjoy them for all they're worth. That when the storm comes, we are there for one another. That we hold each other, that we weep with one another, that we grieve with one another, that we're angry about the evils in this world but when a storm passes, and they do come and go in our lives, that when the storm passes, we rejoice in the reality of the kingdom of God. It will encourage your hearts as you begin to experience more and more the reality of the celebration of life restored and renewed, of pain gone through and healed. But those who watch us, They'll wonder how. They'll want to celebrate. We all want to celebrate. My wife rightly encouraged me to give you some kind of concrete example of what that might look like. So I'll just speak from personal experience. They have to see us celebrate. The world, our neighbors, they need to see the joy that we have. So how do we do that? Well, things that I've done, and this is all varied, so I'll just give you my examples. We're sports addicts. Don't have to be if you're hurt. But we regularly coach, which we're also addicted to, which probably goes back to control issues. But we would have the parties at our house at the end of the season. And we'd open our home, and that's something we are personally able to do. And it allowed people to see a measure of celebration. And then we'd invite them to something like our deck night, which we had our first one a few weeks ago, which is just a casual gathering together and enjoying a fellowship and sharing stories and experience. An ease of presence with believers and non-Christians. How do you do it? How do you know how to do it? Well, it's those people that are right next to you. Do they see you celebrating the goodness of God? One of the other things that we did because we wanted to be present out in community was that we had a regular hangout, a regular place where every Friday, it's called Left Hand, it's a little brewery. We don't have a place to, I'm trying to figure that out. I, I mean, the coffee cottage certainly is. Get my plug in for Sally. She gives me a free cup of coffee every time I mention it. 
But the reality is a place where our community regularly gathers. Are we regularly there? And what, what Left Hand was, was a place where you could go right after work. It was a truest sense, a meeting house in that old sense of the word. And we had people there on every Friday. We initially just started hanging out with one another. But eventually we started to meet the other people who were regulars there, people coming home from a job. Longmont had a place where a lot of people worked. It was a town of 80,000. So you could stop in for a pint and head home all within an hour, as opposed to some of you folks who have to commute an hour. So there's a difference here, but I'm trying to figure out how it works. Bottom line is this. We were so regularly present that we began to draw new people to our group simply because of the joy and the fellowship that was expressed out in the open in public on their terms, not on our own. And that is contagious. And as we seek to understand what does it mean for Shehalem Valley to have an open door, to be a place where we celebrate the goodness of God, if we want that, God will give us the opportunities to be present within Newburgh, to celebrate openly the joy and the reality of rebirth, of life eternal of the end of futility, beginning eternal significance. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would bless your people. Lord, in difficult times, it's difficult to celebrate. Give us wisdom to know when and how. May we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. May we hold in tension the reality. And Lord, may you come quickly. Tension may evaporate. That we may live a great joy. Christ. The uh, ushers would come forward.